Thank you very much. Uh, it's uh, a real pleasure to be back here again uh, at Drisha. I, um, uh, uh, it's not, I should say, entirely coincidental uh, that I'm um, speaking about um, Rosh Hashanah and its various uh, um, incarnations in um, uh, different periods two days uh, before the official publication date of my uh, new book, uh, How to Read the Bible. Um, for some reason, the publisher decided that September 11th was just the right time for it to uh, come out. Uh, well, no one chooses his birthday, and frankly, you don't have much control over your book's uh, publication date either, but that's another story. Uh, I decided to talk about a certain aspect of Rosh Hashanah this evening, uh, in part because uh, it very much parallels what, I, what I've tried to do in writing this book. Uh, so let me begin, if you will, by telling you something about uh, the book, How to Read the Bible. I should say I wrote this book with great uh, trepidation. I'm an Orthodox Jew, and yet for the last uh, 30 years or so, I've been a professor of Bible, uh, 25 of them at Yale and Harvard, and the rest with some overlap at Bar-Ilan. Uh, I say, and yet, because Orthodox Judaism and modern biblical scholarship are two items that really don't go together. It's not just a matter of Torah min uh, the divine inspiration of scripture, as most people who don't know about modern biblical scholarship suppose. It has to do uh, with everything that modern scholars have discovered about the Bible and its world, and about actual biblical texts, and how they um, are related one to another, as well as how they came into being. In a word, modern biblical scholarship has not been kind to the Bible. Archaeologists have cast into doubt some of the most basic events of biblical history, the exodus from Egypt uh, and, subs and the subsequent conquest of the land, uh, the great united monarchy of David and Solomon, um, the traditions of, um, uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Hebrew linguists and other text scholars have um, also cast doubt upon the traditions of the unitary authorship of, of various biblical books from the Torah to the Psalms to Proverbs to virtually every prophet prophetic book in the Bible, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Amos, and so forth. More than that, though, these uh, text scholars have labored really for the last 150 years uh, to highlight the many contradictions and doublets and repetitions that seem to exist within the Tanakh, within the Bible, indeed uh, within the Torah itself. Uh, such phenomena uh, undermine the idea of these texts' unitary authorship as well as their authority. And uh, beyond uh, all these troubling specifics, it is the whole attitude of modern biblical scholarship that seems completely out of keeping with Orthodox Judaism. The latter is all about the love and respect and reverence for Torah, whereas the former seems determined to uh, pull it apart, to reveal whatever looks like an embarrassing little secret, indeed to destroy the whole fabric of traditional Jewish piety. No wonder then that Orthodox Jews have traditionally shied away from this discipline. I remember when I first uh, started teaching at Yale in the 1970s, I was new in town, 
And my first day there, I got a ride back from shul with the rabbi. And uh, uh, he, uh, he asked me, I told him I taught it. I was teaching at Yale, a new, new professor. And he said, well, well, what do you teach? And I said, uh, you know, Tanakh. And he said, well, well, what do you mean by that? And I said, well, you know, biblical criticism. And he said, criticize, criticize, that's the problem. Can't you think of anything nice to say? <laughs> and I have to say, uh, 30 years later, that still is the problem. Uh, so how did I get into this field in the first place? Well, um, I guess mostly I was uh, curious. Uh, in fact, uh, that may be the reason why many of you uh, came here this evening. I was like you. I, I, wanted, I knew a lot of Tanakh before I started in graduate school. In fact, uh, I knew uh, good parts of the Torah by heart. That, that's what comes from being a Baal Kore. Uh, so, um, uh, you know, uh, I... Uh, I also knew one or two people who were already graduate students in Bible, and frankly, it bothered me that while I thought I knew the text better than they did, they seemed to know all sorts of things that I didn't. Uh, they knew about those mysterious other languages, Akkadian and Ugaritic, and how they related to biblical Hebrew. They knew about the history and literature of the ancient Near East and how they related to biblical texts. And they knew about ancient Egypt, not everything they knew was so appealing. Um, I was well aware that they also knew about J and E and P and the other reputed sources of the Torah, as well as about Julius Wellhausen and Hermann Gunkel and the other founders of the discipline of modern scholarship. Uh, and people whose work focused precisely on the sorts of internal contradictions and doublets and seams I've mentioned and which, whenever anyone pointed them out, caused me profound consternation and almost physical discomfort. But frankly, it bothered me that I did not know that stuff either, what modern scholars were saying about these problems. I wasn't exactly sure what I would do if I did know, but it bothered me that I didn't. Um, I went to graduate school and learned all these things, but the questions did not end there. I've spent a good part of the intervening years wondering what to do with this knowledge. And frankly, I don't think that puts me in an altogether separate category from many of you. Uh, you don't need to have gone to graduate school to have heard of the documentary hypothesis, that is the idea that our Torah does not represent the work of a single author and certainly not Moses, but instead stems from the combination of originally separate documents or sources that have been stitched together by a later editor or editors. You don't need graduate school for that because the documentary hypothesis is taught in undergraduate core curriculums across the country and even in high schools, uh, Jewish high schools. In fact, uh, I was surprised to learn when I moved to Israel that it's actually part of the high school curriculum of secular high schools in Israel. Uh, it's also described in half a dozen books about the Bible that you can pick up at any Barnes and Nobles, but of course for much more money than uh, the one out there. Uh, uh, in other words, this is not exactly uh, a, a recherche subject. And you don't need to have gone to graduate school to know uh, that archaeologists have thrown into question the historical accuracy of biblical uh, history. Not only the events that I mentioned, uh, the exodus and the conquest of the land, but a great many other particulars. 
archaeologists or journalists or the journalists who interview them uh, have been writing about such things in the New York Times, Sunday Magazine, and similar venues for decades. Uh, so I'm probably not wrong in thinking that these same questions have more than occasionally occurred to many of you. Still, it's one thing to ask yourself questions. It's another thing to try to answer them or at least sketch out some sort of a response in writing a book. One reason for my hesitation in taking that further step was my conviction that such an act cannot be undertaken in the abstract. I've read a number of articles and even longer treatises by orthodox scholars that attempt to deal with modern biblical scholarship. But most of them don't seem to have a very detailed knowledge of what modern scholarship is all about. Indeed, many of them seem to believe that the only important issue is that of the authorship of the Torah, and even that is usually dealt with without touching on the main element of the documentary hypothesis, namely the developmental history of Israel's religion that is supposedly embodied in these different hypothetical sources. Uh, global solutions to very abstract problems may satisfy some people. For me, they simply collapse when confronted by real texts and scientific data. So I didn't want to add to that literature. On the other hand, um, uh, taking the reader into the nitty-gritty of the last century's study of the Bible was not particularly appealing either, hence my hesitation. Let me illustrate this quandary with the subject at hand, Rosh Hashanah. As I wrote in describing this evening's lecture, when considered on its own, the Torah's description of Rosh Hashanah is surprisingly spare. It is called the Day of Trumpet Blasts, Yom Teruah. Um, it is not presented as the beginning of the new year and certainly not as a day of divine judgment. And those are just the facts. You can find them recited in any of the Bible introductions I mentioned or for that matter in the Encyclopedia Judaica that graces um, many of uh, the libraries of uh, people present here or at least on the CD-ROM version of the Encyclopedia Judaica now available. And yet in just a few days, Jews around the world, including me, uh, will be preparing themselves for Yom Hadin, the Day of Judgment. If it is indeed a Day of Judgment, why did God fail to mention this crucial detail to Moses when describing the Day of Trumpet Blasts? Indeed, why is there scant mention of this day anywhere else in the Bible? It does not appear at all, for example, in the festival calendar of the book of Deuteronomy. And save for the somewhat cryptic verse in Psalm 81, which says, blow the shofar at the new moon, at the full moon on our festive day, um, it is not presented as a festival anywhere else in the Bible. It's not even clear it is there. And certainly not as the start of the new year or as a day of, the, um, of divine judgment nor for that matter is it known as such in the Dead Sea Scrolls, nor in the voluminous body of Jewish writings that have survived from the end of the biblical period, the so-called biblical apocrypha and pseudepigrapha. Uh, writing in the first century, I heard the tail end of the last lecture that dealt with uh, Philo. I'm not sure this part was quoted, but this is, what, this is Philo's description of um, Rosh Hashanah. Um, Next comes the opening of the uh, sacred month, Tishrei, when it is customary to sound the trumpet in the temple 
at the same and uh, at the same time that sacrifices are brought there, and its name, trumpet blasts, is derived from this. It has a twofold significance, partly to the nation in particular, and partly to all mankind in general. In the former sense, it is a reminder of a mighty and marvelous event which came to pass when the laws of the Torah were given from on high. For at that time, the sound of the trumpet pealed forth from heaven at Mount Sinai. As for the sense common to all mankind, the trumpet is the instrument used in war. Therefore, the Torah instituted this feast to be as a thanksgiving offering to God, the peacemaker and peacekeeper. This is a Jew who lives in the first century of the Common Era, and he doesn't have the faintest idea that Rosh Hashanah is either the beginning of the year, Rosh Hashanah, or that it has anything to do with divine judgment. Now, it is true that Philo lived in Alexandria in Egypt and may not have been up on the latest developments in Eretz Yisrael, Although, as a matter of fact, the opposite contention may be upheld with a regard to many other particulars. I should say here that I wish the facts were otherwise, but it is really only uh, in the Mishnah that Rosh Hashanah is described as Yom Hadin, a day of judgment. Uh, there it says, at four times during the year, the world is judged at Pesach with regard to grain, the grain harvest at Shavuot, well, you all know this, Mishnah, with regard to the fruits of the tree. At Rosh Hashanah, everyone on earth passes before him like soldiers in a regiment, called Ba'eolam Ovrin Lifanav Kivnumeron. As it is said, he creates the hearts of all of them, he considers all their deeds. And at Sukkot, they are judged with regard to water, that is, rainfall, in the coming year. Um, it is certainly striking uh, that the only assertion in this list that seems to need proof from scripture is the one about the world being judged on Rosh Hashanah. The others apparently are self-evident and well-known, but not this one. And what is that proof from scripture? Apparently the Mishnah has no evidence to offer from the Torah itself. Indeed, nothing explicit from the whole Bible. Instead, it offers a creative re-understanding of a verse from Psalms. The verse praises God as the one who is Hayotzer Yahad Libam, he who creates or created all their hearts. Here I should explain that the word Yahad, uh, which uh, often means together, in biblical poetry um, is used uh, sometimes to mean uh, a kind of synonym of uh, um, uh, everyone or all. Indeed, it's often paired with the word kol, which has roughly the same meaning. Um, so that's what the verse says. He creates all their hearts uh, and he uh, contemplates all their deeds. But how does it saying that God creates or created all their hearts support the idea of one great day of judgment each year? Well, really, it doesn't. Uh, apparently, the, um, therefore, the Mishnah is proposing a slightly different reading of these same words. Hayotzer is uh, being taken not as a verb but as a noun, a reference to God, the Creator. At the same time, the word yachad is being construed in its other sense of together. If so, this clause has no verb. Uh, and so the Mishnah invites us to provide one. Hayotzer, the Creator, puts or assembles or something else 
Yahad Libam, their hearts all together. Hamevin El Kol Maasehem, in order to inspect all their deeds. In other words, the crucial word Yahad, understood now as together, has been enlisted to suggest a massive review of the troops. If so, then all our preparations to be judged this week are based on something in the Mishnah which has no real connection to the Torah and its festival of trumpet blasts, uh, really uh, to nothing in the Bible itself. To a certain way of thinking, an orthodox way of thinking, there's no problem here. The Torah Shebe'alpeh, the oral Torah, um, is no less of divine authority uh, than the written uh, Torah. Right? Um, uh, both were communicated to Moses on Mount Sinai. This affirmation is found in um, rabbinic text, Tanaitic, as well as Amoraic, and essentially eliminates any problem of divine authority in the, Mish in the Mishnah. It stands co-equal to the laws and practices written in the Pentateuch itself. This I don't need to tell you. It's a kind of a f a foundational statement in rabbinic Judaism. We have two Torahs, uh, one that was uh, written and one that was passed on orally from Moses on down. But here, as in many instances, this essentially ideological assertion, the all-important attribution of divine and mosaic authority to the oral law, butts up against the evidence. If Rosh Hashanah was indeed presented to Moses in the Sinai revelation of the oral law, why is there no mention of it elsewhere in the whole Bible, which spans the history of Israel from the time of Moses through the Babylonian exile and on into Second Temple times. Were not people during all those centuries being judged on Rosh Hashanah? And if so, how can one explain the rest of the Bible's eerie, the, the eerie silence in the rest of the Bible? Indeed, why is there no mention of this item in the Dead Sea Scrolls or in the biblical Apocrypha and Pseudepigrapha, a body of writing still greater than the Bible, the Tanakh itself, and which certainly carries us down to the time just before the Mishnah. Was everybody keeping this matter a secret until the Mishnah came along and published it for the first time, supporting it with a rather lame proof text that only seemed to compound the problem? Here, ideology bumps up against common sense and the historical evidence. I know that there are some people who, in the face of such a conflict, prefer to deny common sense and support ideology, and I have nothing to say against them. No, really. Uh, it's just uh, I can't uh, go that way. So the evidence would indicate that Rosh Hashanah is, at least in uh, our sense of the festival, a rabbinic creation. One might at this point ask, uh, what could have led to this development? They created what caused them to go that way, to turning uh, the turning of a holiday mentioned in passing in the Torah into something it apparently never was before, Yom Hadin, the Day of Judgment. Uh, here I must confess that I've been hiding from you one source that is probably slightly pre-Rabbinic, uh, certainly pre-Mishnaic, and which in any case can shed a bit of light on the evolution of Rosh Hashanah. The source is a book that has survived only in Latin, my native language, uh, but was apparently fa uh, translated into that language from Greek, the Greek in turn having been a translation from the text putative original uh, Hebrew or Aramaic. 
the text was mistakenly, for a long time, mistakenly attributed to the same Philo of Alexandria. Its anonymous author is now referred to by scholars as pseudo-Philo. Now, this is really not fair. They make the mistake. They think it's Philo. And then, when they discover them, they call the guy pseudo-Philo. Um, the text itself is known by its, uh, also known by its Latin name, Liber Antiquitatum Biblicarum, the book of biblical antiquities. And here's what it says about, uh, 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 about Rosh Hashanah. For the festival of trumpet blasts will be as an offering for those who survey you. Or if you amend the text a little bit, it could be read as for you when you are surveyed. For in it, I, God is speaking, survey creation. It will be a remembrance of the whole earth. At the beginnings, presumably the beginnings of the year, I will make known to you who appear before me the number of those who are to die and to be born. Through a fast of mercy, you shall fast for me for your lives, and thus will be fulfilled the promises given uh, to your ancestors. Uh, this passage, along with a lot of the text of the Liber Antiquitatum Biblicarum, is somewhat uh, problematic. I guess uh, to use the Ronald Reagan, I think it was, uh, phrase, mistakes were made in the process of translating it from language to language. But it, it seems clearly to evoke various elements found as well in the Mishnaic holiday. If the reconstructed phrase, for you when you are surveyed, is right, then this seems to fit well with the Mishnah, uh, Mishnah's picture of Rosh Hashanah as a time when everyone passes before him like soldiers in a regiment. That the day will be a remembrance for the whole earth and may draw on the biblical phrase describing trumpet blasts as a day of zichron truah, remembrance. But it seems more likely to be evoking remembrance in the Mishnaic sense, a day of God's remembering us. Um, where, uh, whereby most human beings are granted another year of life. Uh, this, in turn, would be clearly connected to the text's further specification that this day, which occurs at the beginnings, that is, uh, at the beginnings of the new year, on this day is made known the number of those who are to die and to be born. Surely this is the great theme of the rabbinic holiday of Rosh Hashanah, for, but for our purposes, uh, purposes, most important is that somewhat cloudy last sentence. Uh, Through a fast of mercy, you shall fast for me for your lives, and thus will be fulfilled the promise given to your ancestors. What is striking here is the utter lack of transition between the two sentences. God will make known the number of those who are to die and to be born, and then, with some people presumably having been sentenced to death, through a fast of mercy, you shall fast for me for your lives, so that thus will be fulfilled the promises given to your ancestors. Not to put too fine a point on it, this text implies that it is only thanks to the fast of mercy, Yom Kippur, that some of the death sentences pronounced in the, pre in the previous sentence can be abrogated. It is, after all, a fast of mercy. And since the result of this fast is that people's sins will be forgiven, therefore will be fulfilled the promises given to your ancestors. It's not entirely clear what those promises were. 
is the text referring to the description of Yom Kippur that is familiar from the service Ki ba Yom Alechem on that day uh, will be atoned for you um, your uh, sins um, uh, was that the promise or does it perhaps refer to the promise made after the flood whoops it's my alarm <laughs> Does, uh, does it refer to uh, the promises made after the flood um, as it was understood, uh, at least by this author, that uh, human life could, uh, under ideal uh, circumstances, be extended to the age of 120? This is Pseudophilo's interpretation of Genesis 6.3. And I only mention it because he mentions it two verses later, or two sentences later in this book. So that may be what he was thinking. Whichever is the case, one might reasonably conclude from Pseudo-Philo's text that it was really uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, that was responsible for the change in character of the Day of Trumpet Blast. That is, it was Yom Kippur that created Rosh Hashanah as we know it. Frankly, students of rabbinics have concluded the same thing without Pseudo-Philo. If Yom Kippur is to be a day of forgiveness, it must be preceded by a period of penitence, of teshuvah, the supreme rabbinic value. And so the day of trumpet blasts, which had no apparent purpose in scripture, at least none that was mentioned, witnessed Philo's feeble attempt to connect the trumpets with the giving of the Torah or the prevention of warfare. The day which had no apparent purpose in the Torah now became a day of judgment, but judgment that is potentially reversible. Thus, the people of Israel are uniquely granted a time uh, to repent, right? All peoples pass before him, called Ba'eolam Ovrim Lefanab, but Israel uh, is uh, uniquely granted a time to repent of their sins and so overthrow the judgment concluded on Rosh Hashanah, becoming purified and perhaps extending their lives to the Bible's 120-year maximum. If you've been following all of this, then indeed Rosh Hashanah uh, starts to look like a thoroughly post-biblical creation. Well, so what? Uh, Hanukkah is also a post-biblical holiday. Purim is biblical, but certainly post-Torahitic. Even our Shavuot is rabbinic in two important details, or at least rabbinic is wrong, but uh, post-biblical in two important its date, it has no specified date in the Bible, and its connection with the giving of the Torah. The latter is nowhere mentioned uh, uh, with regard to um, Shavuot before the Book of, Bo uh, of Jubilees, which was written right around 200 or so before the Common Era. But I think everyone must feel that the so what in the case of Rosh Hashanah is far weightier than with regard to Hanukkah or Purim or even Shavuot. After all, a great deal hangs on what we see as the central theme of this day, uh, that is the claim that God actually judges us specifically on the first of Tishrei. If this theme is the creation of a group of rabbis, religious geniuses as they have rightly been called, but who themselves make no particular claim to inside information on what goes on in heaven, uh, then why should I think of next Thursday as a day vital to my own continued existence? To ask this question is to ask essentially about the authority of rabbinic law and rabbinic interpretation of the Torah over against the plain sense of the words of scripture. This is a question with some very different answers to it throughout Jewish history. 
it is not properly the subject of a lecture, but of a whole course. In the case of my book, what I've chosen to focus on uh, is how our rabbis and their predecessors approached the task of reading the Torah, since this seems to me absolutely crucial. After I had studied ancient biblical interpretation for some time, that is to say rabbinic uh, exegesis, rabbinic midrash, and the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the biblical apocrypha, and pseudepigrapha, and Hellenistic writers like Philo, what began to strike me is how similar all of these sources, despite their differences, are in the way they go about interpreting uh, the Torah. Right? When you think about it, and what, what do they have in common? Philo's this guy who lives in Egypt and speaks Greek. According to some, uh, he probably uh, didn't um, know a word of Hebrew, or maybe a word or two, but not more than that. Uh, the author of Jubilees uh, uh, lived in uh, the land of Israel, uh, but he certainly wouldn't have sat at the same lunch counter with Ben Sira, another great biblical interpreter from that period. Um, they, uh, they all had very different backgrounds and uh, different interests, uh, but what struck me after a while is how similarly they all approached the job of um, interpreting the Torah. I've written about this before, so forgive me, uh, some of you, if I'm repeating myself, but they all seem to assume the same four things about biblical texts. Uh, the first of their four assumptions is that um, the Bible speaks cryptically, that... Uh, Unlike most things that we read, uh, in the Bible, when the text says A, uh, there's a good chance it really means um, a B, or at least A and something else. Uh, uh, it's a fundamentally a cryptic, esoteric document. Uh, the second assumption that they all share is that uh, biblical texts, uh, although for the most part they're talking about things that happened in the past or were spoken in the past, uh, have a message for us today. Right? Uh, so when they're talking about Abraham or Jacob and so forth, these aren't simply tales about our ancestors, but they're tales with a message for, um, uh, uh, for us about how we ought to behave. Um, the third assumption is that although um, the Bible, the Tanakh, contains texts from different periods and uh, written in different uh, historical circumstances uh, from, uh, by people, uh, from different aspects of society, that all these texts are fundamentally harmonious. That is to say, they contain no contradictions, uh, no errors in fact, that they are essentially perfect. And the fourth assumption is that um, these texts are all, in some sense, divinely sanctioned, uh, divinely inspired, given by God, uh, one of those uh, three, in any case. Um, uh, and uh, uh, that too stands in contrast to other texts. It's really these four assumptions that stand behind the rabbinic approach to scripture and incidentally the Christian approach as well, at least until the rise of modern biblical scholarship. Approach scripture with these assumptions as your starting point and you generate the kind of interpretation found in all ancient biblical exegesis. <coughs> In a real way, what happened toward the end of the Second Temple period, when these assumptions uh, are first in evidence, was essentially a massive act of rewriting of Israel's ancient texts. Not a word of them was changed. Uh, but approached through the prism of these four assumptions, the text's meaning came to be altered radically. 
In this book, uh, I try to show how this happened in regard to all sorts of things in the Tanakh. But I must say, for me, the most compelling example is what happened with the Song of Songs. Uh, allow me, if you will, to read a couple of paragraphs uh, that I wrote on this subject in that book. I start off by talking about how modern scholars uh, think about the Song of Songs. And of course, now we have lots of Egyptian texts uh, in particular that are reminiscent of the Song of Songs, often uh, something close to the same phrasing appearing in them. And people say, oh, well, this is just, you know, some ancient uh, love lyric, ancient Israelite love lyric comparable to ancient um, Egyptian love poetry. Uh, but then uh, what is this song doing in the Bible? From early times, apparently, it came to be read as an allegory of the love between God and his people. After all, its lush language was often highly metaphorical. Why not read the metaphors a little differently, as if they referred to the yearnings, the consummations, and frustrations of the love that joins human beings with the divine? Frustration plays no small part in the song. I called to him, but he did not answer, is a frequent theme. Is this so different from the psalmist's frustration? I've called out with all my heart, answer me, O Lord. And if the song raises love itself to the very summit of human existence, then perhaps it really is just one long metaphor, its real subject, the love between uh, man and God. Once a bearded sage heard an old American song. She'll be coming round the mountain when she comes. She'll be coming round the mountain when she comes. She'll be coming round the mountain. She'll be coming round the mountain. She'll be coming round the mountain when she comes. She'll be driving six white horses. Oh, we'll all come out to meet her when she comes. We will kill the old red rooster. Oh, we'll all have chicken and dumplings when she comes. We'll all be shouting hallelujah when she comes. Do you think, uh, this bearded sage asked, uh, that this song is talking about a real woman? Why should one person need six white horses? I'm sparing you the Yiddish accent that I was thinking of when I was learning this. Why should one person need six white horses? No, it is talking about the messianic age when God's earthly presence, always referred to as she, that is the Shekhinah, will once again reappear rounding the corner of Mount Zion. She'll be coming round the mountain when she comes. The six white horses are a token of the Messiah's cult mentioned by the prophet Zechariah. And if the song speaks, speaks of six, it is because all this will come to pass in six or sixty years. And then everyone will be gathered from the earth's four corners to welcome the event. As for the old red rooster, this is the rooster Ziz companion of the Leviathan, symbol of evil. Both will be killed in the end of days to make the messianic meal. These are the chicken and dumplings, as traditionally foretold. Then hallelujah will ring from every quarter. This is what he said, and soon everyone was singing the old song, but now its meaning was completely different. The words had not changed in the slightest, but what they meant had been transformed utterly. Henceforth, no one could think of the old song in the same way. In one way, the Song of Songs is the most important book for the issue I've raised, since it poses most squarely the question of original meaning. If biblical texts mean only what they meant when they were first composed, 
then why should we include the Song of Songs in the Bible? And why did... Um, uh, and why should we uh, think of Rosh Hashanah as a day of judgment? According to modern scholars, the Song of Songs originally had nothing to do with God. Uh, that is, um, um, that is no, uh, it, it is no different uh, from the love lyrics of ancient Egypt. True, people were misled for a while. Rabbi Akiba of the second century declared that the whole world altogether is not as worthy as the day in which the Song of Songs was given to Israel. And Christian interpretations from the homilies and commentary written on the song by the early exegete origin uh, in the uh, second and third century to the 86. This is amazing. Uh, Bernard of Clairvaux actually wrote 86 different uh, sermons on the Song of Songs and so forth. Uh, only show the extent to which uh, these authors exhausted themselves in attributing to it all sorts of hidden meanings. But now that we know what the song is really talking about, it's just one of those ancient Egyptian uh, type uh, uh, erotic love songs. Um, now that we know that uh, uh, what the song is really talking about, um, we ought to have no further use for it. Indeed, we ought to protect the delicate minds of children from exposure to these sometimes too easily deciphered metaphors. Unless unless a text's original meaning is not necessarily its meaning forever and ever. This is a disturbing idea, of course. The whole point of writing something down is to put it into a fixed form that will last, presumably unchanged. But sometimes things happen to change the meaning of a text. Someone like the bearded sage a few paragraphs ago heard the Song of Songs and heard in it a message that uh, had probably not been intended by its original author. In a sense, one might think of him as the song's second author. He did not change a word, but he utterly transformed what the song meant. Listen to it my way, he said, and it's not about a man and a woman at all. He probably never claimed that this was what the song had been composed to mean, only that one could understand it that way, and people agreed. Soon they were singing it and winking to each other. Get it? This was how the Song of Songs became part of Holy Scripture. Then after a while, the winking stopped and the religious meaning became the only meaning. Uh, in a sense, what happened with the Song of Songs is what happened, at least to some degree, with other parts of Scripture. Psalms that had been meant to be recited in the temple as an accompaniment to sacrifices came to be recited at home or in synagogue. In the process, the psalmist's I bow down before you changed its meaning. It no longer denoted a cultic act, I bow down before the holy of holies where you, O God, are said to be enthroned, but was now a non-cultic turning to the omnipresent deity, I acknowledge you to be everywhere. At roughly the same time, stories like that of Abraham also changed. Read it my way, a clever exegete must have said, and it will be seen to recount the life of a sorely tried model of virtue, the world's first monotheist. Of course, um, some of you know that uh, Abraham is never described that way in, in the Bible. Uh, it's uh, simply an old Jewish interpretive tradition that he was the first monotheist. Um, soon it was found that Jacob did not actually lie to his father 
you just had to put in the right punctuation. This is that famous Midrash where, uh, well, you all heard this. Uh, no, it's where, um, where uh, you know, Jacob goes into his, his father and his father says, who are you, my son? And, and Jacob says, I am Esau, your firstborn. This is not the kind of story you want to offer to your children as a model of ethical behavior. And so it was necessary to uh, reinterpret the story. And um, uh, it's important to say it wasn't just Jacob's response, but uh, his father's question that was reinterpreted. Instead of, because it has, the Torah has no punctuation, you could read one question as if it were two. Who are you? Question mark. My son? Question mark. Right? And then Jacob answers, I am. That, that was his answer to the last question. Are you my son? I am. Esau, on the other hand, is your firstborn. Uh, so um, this, uh, you know, uh, basically eliminates the, uh, the lie. Well, I'm sure that began a little bit tongue-in-cheek. But uh, those of you who, uh, you know, went to day school uh, learned it as what really happened. Um, without such changes, would there ever have been a Bible? That seems most unlikely. Why should anyone seeking to worship God devote himself or herself to reading the etiological narratives and political maneuvering that existed in a civilization now long dead? Indeed, the guerrilla tactics and court intrigues of various ancient kings, law codes endorsing harem and the stoning of a rebellious child, or statutes, although that's occurred to me, uh, or statutes forbidding Molech worship and similarly outdated concerns. All of these texts underwent a radical change in meaning when they began to be interpreted in the somewhat quirky, highly creative, and altogether God-centered approach of ancient biblical scholars in the late biblical period. The original meaning of these texts disappeared. In a sense, ancient interpreters rewrote every one of them even though they did not change a word. The question that poses itself to today's reader, uh, to today's readers is, can we still read the Bible uh, with the approach and assumptions that these ancient interpreters brought to it, even though modern scholarship has now convinced many people uh, that this way of reading is quite out of keeping with the original meaning of the text? Or to refine the question a bit, if you and I know a little too much to espouse that old way of reading naively and unquestioningly, can we somehow nevertheless manage to espouse it as what the Bible, the Tanakh, as opposed uh, or as distinguished from its original constituents, uh, constituent parts, this is what the Bible means. Indeed, can we hold on to both old and new together in our heads, perhaps recalling a hypothetical read it my way and a wink? Well, that is the question I pose in this book, and I try to give an answer of sorts in my last chapter. I think even the question of Rosh Hashanah, although it doesn't look like it at first, depends on an exegetical move similar to the one described in connection with the Song of Songs. It was not just a matter of the proximity of the day of trumpet blast to Yom Kippur, though, of course, inherent in the assumptions that I mentioned before, is that no such juxtaposition could be accidental or without significance. If trumpet blast occurs 10 days before Yom Kippur, any ancient interpreter would assume that um, there's a kind of connection between these two. But those trumpet blasts themselves came to be exegetically associated with the king, 
whose arrival in rabbinic times as later on was often marked by the trumpet, by the blast of trumpets or other wind instruments, Tiruat Melech Bo, as it says. Um, now they even had to do this now in the White House. Uh, you know, they have these people with trumpets and long horns. And, uh, so that indicates that the great king, or the king, well, in any case, has arrived. Uh, the connection between these blasts and the king's arrival was not necessarily self-evident. Witness Philo's rationale for the day, which had nothing to do with the king's arrival. But for rabbinic exegetes, this was apparently a crucial element in the whole. The shofarot marked the, king's, uh, the divine king's arrival. Indeed, given the fact that the king in ancient Israel was Eo Ipso, also a judge, the supreme judge, the heralding of the king's arrival might indeed mark the start of some sort of judicial proceeding. Thus, read through the prism of the four assumptions and eyeing the presence of a fast of atonement ten days later, the rabbinic uh, construction of Rosh Hashanah as a great day of, of judgment starts to look less like pure invention and more like biblical interpretation. Uh, not just ordinary interpretation, but the transformative sort practiced by a group of ingenious, sometimes highly creative, and always, as I said, God-centered readers of the sacred text. Thank you very much. Yes, please. Yes, sir. Uh, I think uh, you'd have to ask a Karaite. I really, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, to give you a very academic answer, that, that's not my period. But uh, <laughs> uh, I, I don't. Does anybody know what the Karaite practice is? No. Or can I speak freely? Uh, uh, no, I actually know a Karaite, but he doesn't. He, he comes to uh, our synagogue um, most days, but not for Rosh Hashanah. So I suspect there is something, to, you know, special that they do. I do know that uh, you know the the question of Shabbat and, and Rosh Hashanah was uh, this was a particularly thorny one. Can you um, uh, can you uh, blow the shofar uh, on on Rosh Hashanah or not? And uh, the late uh, Professor Ezra Fleischer of Jerusalem found a, an, an old uh, piyut uh, representing uh, the practice that existed in Eretz Yisrael. And I have to say, our practice is very much reflective of what went on in, in the Babylonian yeshivot, um, uh, where the kind of center of political power ended up. But uh, apparently in Eretz Yisrael, they did. They used to strap the shofar to a pillar in the synagogue, and on Shabbat, uh, somebody would be able, without touching it, be able to come up and uh, blow the shofar. <laughs> yes, sir. What do you think was the mindset of the rabbis? Did they think of themselves as innovators, or did they think of themselves uh, well, I'm, I'm so glad you asked that question. That seems to me to be absolutely uh, crucial. And I think, um, I, 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 myself, I don't think one could give a, a global answer to it. I'm sure um, that at the beginning, there, there was a great deal of self-consciousness. But things get institutionalized, including these four assumptions. And after a while, this was just the way um, the Torah was to be read and conclusions were to be drawn. Yes? Along those same lines, did they explain 
Yes. Well, I, about Rosh Hashanah, I've never heard any uh, disagreement. There are questions about, uh, I, I mean, I have to say, uh, there was this one logical issue, um, or maybe logical isn't right, but tactical. If, uh, heaven forbid, uh, someone should commit a sin, say, uh, you know, two weeks or three weeks from now, uh, presumably that person is not going to be judged uh, until almost a year after having committed it. And then, when is the punishment going to come? It'll come sometime in the next year. So, uh, whatever it would be, how's the person going to remember that, you know, this is coming because I did that? Um, I suppose it depends on the sin, of course. But, uh, but uh, it, you know, uh, uh, it would seem to make more sense um, that a person ought to be punished right away. And indeed, that, uh, uh, that opinion is up, upheld, or at least presented, in, in, the, in the Gemara. Uh, but um, but I did want to say um, maybe I'm just a, a victim of uh, you know my own uh, field of interest. But often I'm utterly persuaded by these things. I have to say I feel that way about Rosh Hashanah. I don't want you to leave here saying ah, that's all. There is this day of trumpet. What's it doing there? And obviously it is ten days before Yom Kippurim. And the you know shofar was a kind of entrance of the king. So. I, I certainly wouldn't, you know, uh, say that this was invented out of whole cloth. It was a good uh, bit of interpretation, and uh, you know, certainly a lot of them have um, at least convinced me. Um, I do. I mean, I I, I, I want to take some more questions, but I can't leave your question without observing that there were some things that nobody could go for. I, you, know, you know the story about uh, Rabbi Akiva, who um, s- you know says one day in the yeshiva. There was really, you know, in, in, uh, during the plagues in Egypt, there was really only one big frog and not a whole bunch of frogs because it says, you know, the tzifardea in the singular, uh, you know, covered the face of the earth. And so it must have been one big frog whose shadow just covered all of Egypt, to which his colleague said, uh, Akiva, go back to your specialty of uh, laws of purity and impurity. Uh, yes. Well, I think that's, you know, great. I, I, uh, uh, I really meant this as an academic talk, but I also sometimes uh, speak in shul. And, uh, and what I would say is uh, it's no accident that we talk about the aseret yimei teshuvah. It's uh, the rabbinic conception, the 10 days of, of repentance, the rabbinic conception of Rosh Hashanah is so tied up with uh, Yom Kippurim, the Day, day of Atonement, that, uh, that uh, Rosh Hashanah itself is, uh, is the start of this period, not after uh, Rosh Hashanah, but, uh, uh, but what Rosh Hashanah inaugurates is these, uh, these 10 days. And actually, if you look, I was just looking at what modern-day post-Kim say, you know, because then it's a problem. Why is it we don't... We aren't allowed to say penitential prayers on Rosh Hashanah. And you're even supposed to be happy. And uh, uh, I, I confess I was reading Ovadi Yosef on the subject. And he said, well, you know, if your tears spring forth spontaneously, 
that's okay. But you're not allowed to kind of try to, uh, you know, uh, be sad because it's a holiday. Uh, so, yes. Yes. Right. For those of you that may not, uh, you probably all know this, uh, but but if you don't, the, you know the the Talmudic story is that um, Moses comes back to life and and is brought to the study hall of Rabbi Akiva, the leading rabbi of his day, and he you know, modestly takes a seat in the back and listens to the discussion and he doesn't understand a word. Uh, but at some point somebody asks, uh, how do we know that? And, uh, and uh, Rabbi Akiva says, halakha Moshemi Sinai, this is a uh, practice that was, uh, uh, you know, dictated to Moses on Mount Sinai. And, and he, he, he recognizes his name and he's pleased. <laughs> Uh, but this is a story, really, about the uh, 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 the rabbinic self-awareness of the gap between um, the original words of the Torah and uh, how they were uh, exegeted uh, by later generations. That that's an important um, text to mention, and it's certainly not the only one. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Right. Well, in this case, I must say I know the questioner, and so I know you know part of the uh, you know history of this. Uh, it, it is a, a, a somewhat murky subject uh, um, because it's uh, on the one hand. Uh, called the seventh month, Nisan is the first month. Um, the Mishnah that, uh, and, and so I mean, I, if, if you'll allow me to sort of freely uh, word, reword your question, where did anybody get the idea that this was the beginning of the year? Um, and in the Mishnah before the one that I quoted, uh, it actually starts off and it says, There are, in fact, four different. Uh, uh, things that are Rosh Hashanah, um, and I uh, and, uh, um, and then it lists uh, you know what what the four are and 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 what they determine as the the beginning of the year. The, the Nisan Rosh Hashanah determines the regnal years of uh, King and uh, various other things, um, and uh, so, so you know that has a certain logic to it. Uh, Nisan is when things start to grow again and, you know, buds appear and so forth. But um, on the other hand, we do know that in ancient Babylon, they had a fall uh, New Year's festival and people associate, you know, the names of our, our months are uh, um, Babylonian names. And some of them, I'm afraid to say, the names of Babylonian gods. Uh, but they were just in common use in Second Temple times. People have associated the... Um, the name Tishrei with that Aramaic root that means to begin. And uh, so this, you know, people have suggested that this may have contributed to the notion of Rosh Hashanah as the beginning, but uh, 
Uh, you may have, um, you know, more information about, uh, about how it came about. I just, uh, it, it seems to me th that such an association would be coming in pretty late if Philo never heard of it and, you know, all these other people in the intervening centuries never heard of it. But perhaps, uh, you know, that was, I, I should just mention that was the, you know, the theory of, of uh, another uh, 20th century biblical scholar, Sigmund Mowinkel, uh, who was not Rocky's faithful friend. Uh, Mowinkel was uh, a student of, of Gunkel. Uh, and I always have to say that to students. Uh, but uh, uh, he had this theory that um, all these uh, Psalms that talk about uh, Hashem Malach, that's a whole ca category of Psalms, God has become king, were uh, associated with a fall enthronement of God festival. Uh, unfortunately, there's no evidence that such a thing ever existed, but um, that might be another piece of a puzzle. Yes? How about Hayom Marat Olam? Right. The identification of Rosh Hashanah with the creation of the world. That's totally rabbinic, and I'm, I'm not sure exactly how that, how that construct developed. Right, that's true. In other words, uh, the theme of of, uh, of the world actually having been uh, created in Rosh Hashanah, uh, on, in Tishrei. Well, of course, this was a subject of dispute even in rabbinic texts. Uh, but the way it comes out in our liturgy is that the world was uh, created in Rosh Hashanah. It's interesting. People have tried to find that also in um, that phrase of pseudo-philos uh, when he says, I... Uh, survey creation. I think they're wrong, but um, uh, but if God says I survey or surveyed creation, um, some people wish to take that in the sense of the creation of the world. Whereas I think what it really means is all creatures. Yes. Well, it's one of those things. It actually does appear in the Bible, but not in connection or not referring to our Rosh Hashanah. Um, but uh, as far as I know, uh, the earliest appearance is in the Mishnah. But I find it, you know, I mean, it's a good question because it says in that first Mishnah that I quote, uh, well, the beginning of that chapter, there are four different Rosh Hashanahs. But then the next Mishnah uh, that I started off by quoting is uh, in four different times of the year, um, the uh, world is judged, uh, and the Pesach alatua, you know, and so forth. And then it gets to the third one and says, Be Rosh Hashanah Kol Bayolam. So it seems to imply that the name Rosh Hashanah is referring to that day in Tishrei is already well known. Uh, it doesn't say, Be Rosh Hashanah Shebe Nisan. It says, in Nisan the world is judged on this, and, uh, you know, Atzeret, and uh, that is to say, Shavuot is judged on that. And then Berosh Hashanah. So that would indicate that the term had been around. At least to me, that's what it says. Yes? Is it possible that um, the universalization of Rosh Hashanah was part of the early polemic against early Christianity? The universalization of right. it. In other words, trying to appeal, first of all, to the old mankind, there for the creation of the world, there for the, um, the individual. Now, these are all moves that are counter-national. Yeah. 
I, I mean, it, it's uh, it's true, but uh, frankly, I would I, I I think I would conclude the opposite because first of all, even by the end of the second century, Christianity was not that important to um, you know. Uh, the rabbis. It existed. It was uh, really going great guns outside of the land of Israel, but, you know, only some of them were aware of that. And it had not yet been adopted by the Roman Empire. After that, in the 4th century, uh, it did become a big subject of concern. But uh, uh, often the reaction to it was to pull in the wagons and just emphasize the the national rather than the uh, uh, the universal. So I, I, I wouldn't think it had a role, but you never know. Yes? I think there's something to the fact that the only house holiday the Tanakh that takes place on the first day of the month, every other holiday takes place 14, 15, 15, and the fact that the zodiac sign is scaled, is that just coincidental also? Oh, is that true of that uh, month? Uh huh. Well, uh, I don't, I, you know. Always stay away from that stuff. That <laughs> I do have a sister who lives in California. <laughs> right. Uh, the fact that it's the first day, there's no doubt. I mean, uh, it, it, it is quite unique, uh, as you say, in, in that respect. But I wouldn't know what to make of it. Maybe one... Sorry? Absolutely. Absolutely. The, uh, the public reading of the Torah in, uh, the, I guess, chapter 9 of Nehemiah, uh, is, uh, it takes place. But it doesn't say that it's any special day. It may be the public reading that makes it a special day, but it just identifies it as the first day of the seventh month. Yes. Yeah, Certainly possible. Uh, if it says it, you know, it may be just a dating, or it may be that it already had some special status. Well, the one that I mentioned is is in the Mishnah. That's long before uh, the Gemara, and the only uh, the only one I know of is the one in Pseudo Philo that I mentioned. That's it. Yeah, it's surprising. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. Just a A couple of announcements. Uh, we would like to have a Mara's minion uh, in about three minutes. 